Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together on this beautiful day, Monday, August 15th, year of our Lord Jesus 2022. It's a good day because King Jesus reigns. It's the start of a new week that King Jesus is reigning. And for me, I'll let you in on a little personal news here. 30 years ago today, a woman named Krista was uh, kind enough to say I do to me, and uh, we are celebrating our 30th anniversary today. So, uh, babe, if you're listening, which I bet you are, uh, happy anniversary. Look forward to carving out some time here before long to celebrate. So uh, we are working our way through the book of Isaiah, and today we come to a uh, another another fascinating section here. Uh, thank you, Grateful. Thanks for the happy anniversary wishes, and good morning, Keith and Sherry and Brother Martin and whoever else is along with us. So we're uh, we're in this middle section, 23, well, it goes back a ways, doesn't it? But we're in this section, uh, kind of 23, 24 through 27, that uh, has some interesting uh, things to it. I, let, me, let me pull us back again, I, and I know I keep doing this, and I appreciate your patience here, but it is so important when we're reading the Prophets to not simply grab a verse and think we know what it means. But we're trying to get into the original context and the original hearers as much as possible. Now, I always have to explain this. The New Testament has interpretive priority over the Old Testament. What I mean by that is the New Testament reveals the um, the meaning uh, of the Old Testament. We know that. Jesus said, it's all about me. He said, Moses wrote about me. And over and over again, we see the apostles bringing statements from the Old Testament and saying, here's their fulfillment. Here, Here's the interpretation. Here's what it means. So we always have to look at the Old Testament through the grid of the New Testament. Now, I'm not doing that here. I'm not spending a lot of time in the New Testament. But it's, it's not because I deny that the New Testament has to have priority, uh, but I want, us, I want us to see what's in the Old Testament first. As you study the New Testament, you need to really understand what's in the Old Testament because so often we, we get off on our New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament because we don't understand either. So <laughs> with all of that in mind, just know that uh, even though I'm, I'm staying primarily in the Old Testament, and trying to get you into the original audience's mindset, uh, I do believe we have to let the New Testament tell us what the Old Testament means. Um, so uh, here's what, here are the, the big pegs we need to remember. Isaiah is seeing visions. He did not sit down to write the book of Isaiah. It's not a book the way we think of books where there's a table of contents and chapter after chapter, it's not like that. Remember, in the original, there were no chapters at all. There were no verses at all. And what we have is Isaiah sees a series of visions concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's what he tells us in, in verse 1 of chapter 1. Visions that he saw about Judah and Jerusalem. And he spoke to Judah and Jerusalem, what he saw. 
eventually he wrote it down. And these are, there are a lot of segments, a lot of different visions. And somebody, under God's providence, put them all together in one work that we call the book of Isaiah. But it's not necessarily linear, and it, it's not just one story, vision to vision to vision. And so part of our challenge is to figure out where new visions begin, where the old ends and where the new vision begins, because that's not always clear. And that explains some of the abruptness at times from uh, we think we understand what's being said here, and then, whoa, something that seems completely new. So that's one thing to keep in mind, is we always have to uh, remember he's writing things that he saw. And the second thing is he's writing a century or so before the fall of Jerusalem in 586. Much of what he's seeing is about God's punishment of, of the Jews. And he's seeing it beforehand and both warning them and giving hope to the survivors, to the, to the remnant. And then occasionally he's revealing things far into the future, right? So all of that we have to keep in mind, and that's what gives us some, uh, some trouble, uh, some, some fun. It's like a Sherlock Holmes investigation, trying to figure out what all this is about. All right, so with all that as background, uh, chapter 26, I'm going to read through what we covered last week and then get to uh, some new sections today, but we need to, we need to see this all in, in context. Um, chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, which raises the question, what day, right? <laughs> he uses that phrase a lot in this uh, book. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Now, if that day refers to the immediate context, which it may or may not, but probably, <laughs> uh, he's talked about uh, God bringing down the uh, unassailable city, the unassailable fortifications, which he calls Moab. The, the enemies of the Jews, the Moabites, probably symbolic of, of all the nations that have uh, beaten up the Jews over the years. God is, uh, is bringing them down, and Judah's going to sing this song in that day. And remember, this is poetry. This is a song. Here's what they're going to sing. We have a strong city. We have a strong city. The Jews, we have a strong city, which is in contrast to the city of chaos that he talked about in the previous chapter, the city of chaos that was going to be destroyed. So God's going to wipe out Jerusalem, but now they're singing about having a strong city. And we discussed this last week. I think is talking about, I think, I think Isaiah is singing, singing about the new Jerusalem here. He, God sets up walls and ramparts for literally salvation. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter that one that remains faithful. And we talked about this, the, the, who gets to enter this strong city, the righteous nation, the faithful people, those who are devoted to the Lord, who are, who are right with the Lord. He says, or the song says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Just a little side note, I, I continue to reflect on this verse and, and find this very comforting. He will keep if, if, the steadfast of mind, the, the one with the mindset that is focused on him, the one who trusts in him, 
he will keep in perfect peace. And I know we expounded this, so I won't go back over it, but ah, I love that verse. That's, that's hopeful for us. I think this is true uh, universally. If you trust in the Lord, if you keep your mind steadfast on trusting him, he will keep you in perfect peace. So we need to do that. We need to learn from that. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. We can build on that rock and not be destroyed. Why? For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city, Moab, presumably, the, the, the ones who were opposed to, uh, to God's people, the, one, the city that was uh, confident in its strength. God has brought it down. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He cast it to the dust. The foot will trample it. What foot? The feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. Right, so the, the people of Judah who seemed helpless and unable to defend themselves, God defends them, and now they have victory over uh, the city. The way of the righteous is smooth. O oh, upright one, make the path of the righteous level. And I know I keep, I keep applying this here to us, <laughs> which I can't help. But, but think back to the original audience. You, you, have, um, you have survived the devastation of the holy city. Maybe you're led off into exile to Babylon. Maybe you're part of that group that comes back and are rebuilding the city, but you still are under the control of the Babylonians and then the Medes and Persians and the Greeks. And here you see this vision. You, you, you remember these words of Isaiah that your feet will trample those who are oppressing you. Uh, the Lord will crush them. Uh, the way of the righteous is smooth. It will, it will come about here where, where that, uh, oh, is my technology? Are you all seeing me okay? Because on my end, there's a little, little hiccup here. Hmm. All right, I need to restart everything. But I won't do it just yet. I'll wait till we're done here. Uh, I should have known it's Monday. Things happen. Anyway, um, so I think we're back now. Yep. Okay. So the, uh, the vision you're, you're seeing this, you're, you're hopeful because he says the way of the righteous will be smooth. And then this little prayer, Oh, upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the judgments, uh, your judgments, O Lord, we have waited eagerly for you, your name, even your memory is the desire of our souls. Uh, remember we, we talked about this. That's that. Again, put yourself in exile here or, or in, a, in a smaller Jerusalem with a small temple that's unimpressive and you're still under the thumb of other nations to be reminded that uh, we can wait on the Lord. Uh, the desire, our desire is your name. We want your name, O Lord, to be renowned, to be on our bed at night. And our soul longing for him, seeking him diligently in spirit. That's, that's what they would have to do. That's the mindset they need. Uh, they've lost everything. And the glory days are long gone. And they need to be reminded that the Lord is their focus. 
and worship in honor of him, and and they're waiting on him. When the earth, and remember, I'm I'm translating earth here, land, because it can mean the whole earth, but it often means just a region or a land or a nation. And I've argued that mostly through this uh, section, the earth, the land here is the land of Judah. So I may be wrong about that. I, I told you, I have a working hypothesis, right? That's, that's through all of this. I'm holding my interpretation loosely because there are questions I have through this whole thing. But I got to start somewhere and say, okay, here's my working hypothesis and then see which, uh, what passages, especially from the New Testament, would cause me to change that hypothesis or confirm it. So the land, the earth here that I see is predominantly the, uh, the land of Judah. And the, even this song, right, it says this is what they're going to sing in Judah. Now, is that new Judah, so to speak, new Jerusalem and the church? Maybe. I'm certainly open to that. But for right now, again, trying to get into the sandals of the Jew, I'm keeping it to its uh, present context as much as I can. So you may not agree with me on that. that that's all fine. I'm just trying to lay out there my understanding, my, my working hypothesis. So when the land, the land of Judah, experiences your judgment, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. And the same thing with this word world. We think of world as globe, as the whole you know, universe and at least the whole world of men. Um, that's, not, uh, that's not what the word automatically means. It can mean all the inhabited men of the earth. It can mean just the inhabitants of an area, similar to to Eretz, to, to land. Um, Keith says, in that time, how was this transmitted to everyone around him? Uh, you talking about Isaiah itself, like, like his writings. So if you could qualify your question, I'm not entirely sure what you're asking. Okay. So when, uh, so my spirit seeks you diligently when the land experiences your judgments, the inhabitants, uh, of the world, the, the land of men, they learn righteousness. The wicked, when they're shown favor, they do not learn righteousness. Again, we, we talked about this last week. Uh, so God's people, when, when God is pouring out his judgments, giving his commands, and uh, disciplining people, punishing people for not obeying it, his people learn righteousness. The wicked are shown favor and kindness and grace, and they don't learn righteousness. Uh, he deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. That is, the, the, uh, the wicked does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up. They do not see it. They see your zeal for your people. They're put to shame. Indeed, fire devour, will devour your enemies. Lord, you will establish peace for us. So you see this contrast all the way through this. The wicked will eventually receive God's wrath and anger, and they don't learn anything from what's happening around them. The righteous learn to trust the Lord, wait on the Lord, uh, and they see that this is all the work of God's hand. And ultimately, it will lead to peace. And you've established peace for us. You, will, uh, you have also performed for us our works. O Lord, our God, other masters beside you have ruled us. And again, from the Jewish perspective, this goes back to Pharaoh and, and other leaders through the periods of the judges, right? They've been under the thumb of, uh, of other masters through mo much of their history. Uh, 
but through you alone we confess your name. And then we looked at this at the end on Friday. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Now, at face value, that seems zombie-like, but he's already used this language. He's talking about uh, the, the dead kings. Remember back in Isaiah 14, we, we examined this. Isaiah 14, talking about the king of Babylon, and he uses this phrase, the departed spirits. It's literally the shades or maybe shadowy ones. And, and Isaiah pictures there in chapter 14, when the king of Babylon, who is arrogant and pompous and thinks that he has uh, conquered all these nations in his own strength and power and almost puts himself up like a god. He ends up dying, like all kings do, and the kings of all the nations that he conquered and all those who are oppressed by him rise up to meet him and welcome him to Sheol, to the place of the departed, to the the place of death, and they mock him. And they say, "Uh, you're no different than us. Yeah, you had some power and victories there on earth, but now look at you. Your your burial ground is maggots. <laughs> your body's going to decompose like the rest of us, and you're going to be imprisoned here in, in the place of the dead like everybody else. At the end of the day, you are not any greater than the rest of us. So the, the imagery there is not really trying to tell us um, exactly what's happening in the afterlife, that kind of thing. That's not the point. The point is uh, these kings of the earth are not uh, more special than anybody else when they die. So the same language is used here, these departed spirits, the shadows, shadowy ones. They will not live. They will not rise. Therefore, you punish them. You destroyed them. You have wiped out all remembrance of them. So other masters have ruled us, and now referring to them, they're all just dead in the grave. God punished them. He, you know, Pharaoh's gone. All those uh, rulers from the different nations, the Moabites and the other Canaanite lands uh, in the period of the judges and stuff, they're all gone. God punished them. He wiped them out, as, uh, these, one, these kings who, who uh, persecuted God's people. Does that make sense? You've seen all that? So that's all we covered last week. And then this. You have increased the nation, O Lord. So again, this is the song. They're singing in Judah someday. In that day, you've destroyed our kings, the kings that were opposed to us. Uh, We are calling upon you. And now he sees, and they're singing, you've increased the nation. The land of Judah is bigger than it was. You've increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. And by the way, this is exactly the same word, Eretz, that has been translated earth throughout this whole several chapter section. Notice that the NAS here translates it not earth, but land. Why? Well, because they don't think it makes any sense to say he's extended the borders of the earth because we don't think the earth is changing size, right? So this is why I'm arguing. And here it's parallel to nation and land. I think the whole thing all the way through should be land, 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 land. He's, he's, he's got in view here the land of Judah. So don't automatically think 
cosmic destruction and so on. This is all focused on punishment, the land of Judah and Jerusalem and the surrounding nations. But um, anyway, I won't belabor that, but I hope hope you can see this word right here is if they were going to be consistent would be earth. You've extended all the borders of the earth. Well, no, they, they realize it's land. If you go back then and replace everything with land, all the places where it says earth, if you replace that with land, as I've been doing, then you can keep it in its proper context. So now they're singing about God increasing the nation and making Judah broader, expanding the kingdom of Judah. Now, I, I can't resist. <laughs> can't resist at least pointing this out. That didn't happen. That hasn't happened. Literally, that hasn't happened. When the people are allowed to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, they don't become an independent nation. Their borders aren't expanded into this great kingdom. If you if you go back and read Deuteronomy 28 and, and really through the whole the law and all the promises to the Jews of their dominance over all the other nations, if they obey God, if they keep the covenant, that's never happened after this. Now, they had widespread victory under King David and Solomon, but then it was all downhill. And, and so after this period that Isaiah is talking about, uh, the borders of the, of the land were never extended into anything significant. The nation was not increased to anything significant worth singing about. So, of course, this may... Oh, we got a surprise visitor. Happy <laughs> anniversary. Of course I was watching. Mm, I love you. I love you. Have a great day. <laughs> Those of you on video, that's my wife, if you haven't uh, seen her before. Um all right, what, uh, what am I talking about here? Um, so it makes me think, and again, I, I know I keep telling you we're not going to do this. It makes me think this is applied in a different way, not to national Judah, national Israel, but to the new Jerusalem, uh, the heavenly city, to the church, as Peter calls us in First Peter, uh, the holy nation that we are, which we are the fulfillment of all these promises. And so we, we see here a glimpse of the increased, um, uh, increasing numbers of the church across the land, across the, uh, the world kind of thing. Oh Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was on them. So God's people, they're, they're crying out to him and, and it gets so bad that all they can do is is whisper a prayer and God's chastening. He's disciplining them. And then strange imagery here. As a pregnant woman, or as the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in labor pains. Thus we were before you, O Lord. So there's some loose association here with the language. The nation is increasing. The borders of the, of the land are extended. But then he sees this desperate distress. God is punishing them. They, they only have a, the energy to whisper out a little prayer. They're like a pregnant woman who is in pain, screaming and in, in great 
turmoil and travail. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, it seems, to wind. So all this pain and suffering they're enduring, what's the fruit of it? Nothing. It's very vivid, right? If, if uh, Some of you women, maybe many of you women, know this far better than I could, uh, what it's like to, to go through uh, the intense labor pains and imagine for all of that, uh, you know, Krista was uh, in labor for two days with our firstborn, and I watched her, sat there with her for hours and hours and hours, helpless to do anything for her, uh, the intensity of the pain. And, you know, the first day, nothing happened. We had nothing to show for it. She was induced and had to have uh, Pitocin and all that. And, you know, by the end of the day of many, many, many hours of labor, uh, there was no baby coming. And, and so they stopped giving her the, the, the medication to induce this and everything kind of calmed down. And we kind of had this, this thought of, huh, all that work today for nothing, all the pain and her gripping my hand. And I thought she was going to rip my hand off the intensity of the contractions. And, and we had nothing to show for it. Um, now in our day, of course, you know, a C-section is always a possibility. Thankfully we didn't have to go that route, but the baby is going to be delivered one way or the other. But you, we kind of got a, a little bit of experience of this. And, and this is even worse though. This is the the whole thing of the the labor and delivery. And then when finally something does come out of the womb through the body, it, it, it's just wind, right? It's, it's, it's worthless. That's the imagery that Isaiah sees here. We could not accomplish deliverance for the land. So the land has expanded. It's, it's, it's increased, but... God's people didn't make that happen, I think is what's going on here. So he sees a vision here of a, a vast expanding kingdom, but now he's going back and seeing uh, the, the, the people didn't make this happen. They're like a pregnant woman who goes through all the pain and suffering and, and has nothing to show for it. Uh, Thus, we were before you, O Lord, uh, like the woman writhing out and crying in her labor pains and giving birth to wind. Um, we could not accomplish salvation. We couldn't deliver ourselves. We didn't have the power to overthrow our enemies and expand our borders. Uh, the inhabitants of the, the world were not born through our work. See what's going on there? And then we get this very interesting statement. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the land will give birth to shades, to departed spirits. Same word is used of the kings of old. Isn't that interesting? So in all this, we have the, the nation increasing, the borders of the land extending, we have the helpless people who are suffering but have nothing to show for their suffering. They can't deliver themselves. And then Isaiah sees dead people alive. And he uses the word for corpses here, carcasses. Seems to indicate 
bodies that are devoid of spirit and life, now they're the ones walking around. And there's a command here. Those who are in the dust, awake, shout for joy. The, the dawn, the lights are on. The land will give birth to departed spirits. And then he says, come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. Behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the land for their iniquity, and the land will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. All this so interesting. Some of it seems to fit and, and follow along with the pattern we've seen. God is bringing judgment upon the land, upon Judah. And Judah is helpless to do anything about it. But then we get this resurrection of dead people. And then this call to, to go protect yourselves in closed rooms while God pours out his indignation. He's about to rise up and punish the land. And the land will reveal her bloodshed and no longer cover her slain. Is that talking about the people who are going to receive God's judgment? Is that talking about dead people? Is this all resurrection? Is this come into your rooms and close the door and hide? Are these the people who die during the persecution? God's true believers, those back here early in the chapter who were waiting on him, who were calling on him, the faithful, uh, right? Is this them dying and, and waiting in, in rooms while God pours out his indignation and then they're going to come to life? You know what I mean? So I, what I'm asking is, uh, in verse 20 here, come my people enter into your rooms, is that, are they dead? Are they dead and, and now they're just in the waiting place until God finishes pouring out his wrath? You may automatically think this is the last day resurrection, which it could be, could be. There is one other passage that always strikes me as fascinating that I don't know what to do with, a New Testament passage. I'm just going to throw this out there and then I'm going to let that all sit and let you ponder it for a day. (laughs) And I'll get back to Keith and and Lon's questions as we wrap up. But here's this interesting uh, experience in Matthew 27, which I've never understood. So Jesus is on the cross and he cries out again with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. So Jesus just died on the cross, Matthew 27, 50. And verse 51, we all know this, we're familiar with this. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Right? We know that. Fascinating. Then, verses 52 and 53, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Many bodies, not all bodies and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they entered the holy city and appeared to many what (laughs) what 
How is this not front page news? How, why, why do we have no other mention of this? We don't have it in other gospels. As far as I know, we don't have any writing of Jews speaking on the... I mean, do you see what's going on here? When Jesus came back to life, I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, not only do we have the veil of the temple being split and an earthquake, but we have dead Jews coming out of their tombs, walking through Jerusalem and talking to people. Did the people not know they were dead? Who were they? If the people knew they were dead people walking, how is this not the talk of the town? <laughs> and and uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. Uh, this this is this is all very fascinating. All right, um, so I'm gonna let you all ponder that. Sherry says this has always puzzled me too. Yeah, I uh, I don't get it. So Keith's question was uh, in that time how was how was this transmitted to everyone? Isaiah. So Isaiah would speak these visions uh, usually, at least the ones when when he was uh, remember he's trying to call Jerusalem to repentance and and alert them to what's coming. So he would say these things. He would preach, so to speak, and then he would write them down on scrolls. And, uh, and that's what was all collected and eventually, eventually bound together in one giant scroll of Isaiah kind of thing. So, uh, so yes, he would orally present uh, this information to the people, and then it was written down. And, uh, and they would read it, read it in the temple gathering, and then after the temple was destroyed, they'd read it in synagogues and, and that kind of thing. Remember in Luke 4... Uh, Jesus shows up and, you know, that's 400 years later, well, 600 plus years after Isaiah, but they were still reading the scrolls of Isaiah in the synagogue and Jesus reads one and says, hey, that's about me kind of thing. So hopefully that answers your question. Lon says, is this where dispensationalists believe there is still a promise to recreate Israel? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the dispensationalists, and we have to give them this, right? This is, we have to give them this much credit. They read the Old Testament and they say, look, all of these promises of restoration, they'd never happened. And they're right. They're absolutely right. These are promises given to Israel. Things like what we just read, the the land uh, expanding, the borders expanding and all of that. And uh, we're going to see more of that, of Israel experiencing universal worldwide blessing that's never happened since the fall of jerusalem in 586 that has not happened and even those who say that 1948 when israel became a nation again are the the beginnings of that you know we we certainly see no worldwide dominance and and they're not a religious people by and large they don't care about god in most of israel today so this has never been fulfilled and so the dispensationalist argument is, and John MacArthur says this very, very strongly, if God doesn't have a future plan for ethnic geopolitical Israel, then you can't trust him with anything. He's not a promise keeper because he made all these promises to Israel and didn't keep them. So since MacArthur and others believe that God is a promise keeper, then they are absolutely convinced 
there will be a glorious future for national Israel. I think they're right about God's... It, it is necessary for God to keep his promise to Israel or else we can't trust him with anything. Where I think they're wrong is they dismiss the whole New Testament that tells us all of these promises are fulfilled in Jesus and his people, which is the church, and that these promises are not um, national, not national in the way that they were portrayed in the old. So I don't, you know, we, we'll talk about that as we continue to, uh, to go on. <laughs> and Lon says, yay, Krista. So Krista, if you're listening on your way into work, uh, Lon says, yay, Krista. Um, uh, I think I addressed Keith there. Recently died saints who appeared to those who knew them in life, many but not all. Yeah, we don't know, right? Uh, we know they're dead saints. We don't know if they've, if they were, if they'd only died shortly before Jesus's death, or if they're saints from old. Uh, that's the, that's it. We're just not given. We are not given um, a lot of information. Now you say, does this equal many but not all? Yeah, that's possible. It's fascinating to think about. Um, and is that a little hint of the ultimate resurrection? Is that a fulfillment of Isaiah 26? I don't know. So many questions here. Interesting, interesting things. And, and who is he talking to when he says, um, you know, go hide here and wait? Um, you have a little bit of terminology similarity to Jesus saying there are many rooms in the mansion uh, that I'm preparing for you, but I, I, I'm not not enough to, to be certain of a direct correlation. I don't know. Very, very interesting. Well, as we, as we go on in chapter 27 and beyond, we're going to see more specific uh, prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem in either 586 or 70 or both, maybe, as we'll, uh, we'll look at that. So it, it, it seems like the whole section seems, I don't know, I keep saying words like seem, but this is hard stuff. Um, it, it seems like it's fall of Jerusalem moving toward bigger future things, ultimately the swallowing, swallowing up of death itself, and then coming back to destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, we'll, we'll see more of that as we go here. So interesting. So ponder it. And if you have other verses and passages and theories, throw in the comments. I'd love to take a look at it because uh, I'm sorting through all this as well. And some of it seems very clear. Some of it seems very foggy. <laughs> but it is interesting to think about. All right. Have a great day in the Lord. And uh, we will see you all tomorrow. Take care.